0: You would now. I'm going to read First um, Timothy, uh, 12 through First uh, Timothy chapter one, verse 12 through uh, the second chapter, um, verse seven. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified in every way. Quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth.
1: Well this morning we are continuing a part two of a multi-part series in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Christ promised to build his church and he showed us what that building looks like in these epistles and so we're laying the concrete slab of the church which is sound doctrine. Last week we talked about what it looks like when the church loses sound doctrine. Now this week we're going to Give the encouraging other side, which is what is gained when you have sound or healthy doctrine in the church. Sound doctrine. What's gained? Well, two things that we just read about you have conversions, and you also have callings. Conversions and callings. You know, as a young boy, I was reflecting on my conversion and Calling. I was, I was thinking about, you know, this week about what it was like to be seven years old and think back to when I first sensed a call from God. I was not yet saved, but I remember responding to my parents as a seven-year-old saying, you know, I think if, if I were to really say what I'm going to do for my life, I'm going to be a pastor I remember saying that to my parents. I remember standing up in church and reading scripture just like Brother Steve did and sensing uh, the power of God from his word in that experience. It wasn't until I was 18 years old, though, at my Christian college where I attended as a freshman, where we were being asked as freshmen who will sign up for the evangelistic rally in October to preach the gospel, that I really began to personally affirm that calling and sensed the call of God and I remember going forward and signing up to be one of the preachers and when I signed that sign-up sheet as trivial as that sounds there was something spiritual that was happening in my heart because I realized that I wasn't going to be training for business anymore but I was going to be training for ministry now all vocations are spiritual all vocations are what God calls us to do but this particular calling was one where I felt a burden lift off of my shoulders as I sort of went back to the dorm and prayed about what I had committed to do I began to preach in those evangelistic rally sermons and I watched eyes open I watched spiritual life take place in people's hearts I was extemporaneously preaching the gospel just off my head and out of God's word and I watched God plant seeds and bring a harvest during that rally. And then I began to train in ministry and something else happened. As I trained, I began to study and meditate on the qualifications to be a pastor. 1 Timothy 3, we're going to be looking at that soon. And that weight that had lifted off my shoulders and my calling returned to my shoulders. And suddenly I was bearing a burden which, which was crushing me to think about what I had signed up to actually do. And I thought, man, how in the world could I stand blameless before God as a preacher and and do this mighty task? It was heavy duty. Very similarly, when I was seven years old, I felt the stirrings of what I thought was the Holy Spirit and conviction to believe in the Lord, and I took steps of faith towards God. Though I don't think at seven I was saved, I definitely was softened to the gospel. But then I rebelled through my teenage years, and was walking away from Christ and walked in the ways of the world. At 17, though, I was regenerated. The Holy Spirit entered my life through the preaching of a Sunday school teacher and the preacher and my brother witnessing to me, and I came to faith in Christ. Suddenly, I had a burden lifted off my heart. But then a a year later, as I was exploring my calling and wrestling through my own faith, I began to doubt whether or not I could possibly be a Christian because I began to examine my own heart with Scripture, and I saw all kinds of sin and just yuck in my heart. I began to think, "How how in the world could I believe that I'm a Christian? And the burden returned on my shoulders. Well, I want to sort of answer the question, how do you get delivered from those kinds of burdens, the burdens that come on your shoulders where you say, I don't know whether I'm a Christian, whether or not I genuinely have been saved, or the burden of the pressure of saying, I'm not worthy to serve God. How in the world can I move forward and serve Christ even in the local church? Well, what delivered me is what delivers all Christians from the burden of guilt and pressure. It's what delivered Paul. It's what Paul told Timothy as he was initiating Timothy to carry the mantle as a pastor. What delivers you from the burdens and pressures and weight of sin and guilt is sound, healthy gospel doctrine. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, summary statements of doctrinal gospel truth are threaded throughout the pastoral epistles. And it is sound, healthy doctrine that strengthens you from the inside out. I'm telling you, the only thing that could steady my quaking soul when I thought about my sin and about whether or not I was saved, when I thought about the pressure of preaching, the pressure of carrying the mantle as being a pastor called into the ministry, the only thing that could help free my spirit was learning truth, was It was this, it's it's the subjective feelings that stir in your heart where you feel guilty, where you feel overwhelmed, and what happens is, as you learn sound doctrine, the objective truth of God's holy word in the gospel overwhelms those subjective feelings and quiets your soul. The truth is what anchors you. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. In the church, the foundation for the church is to guard strong, healthy doctrine because it, it causes people to be saved. Truth is the power of God unto salvation. That's the gospel. And then secondly, when you have clear teaching and clear, healthy doctrine in the church, you know what happens? People step for, forward in church and they minister they see calling they see god calling them to do certain things hey we're one big family as the church and we got some chores to do and god is calling each one of us to serve and use our gift and talent in the local church but the way that you are strengthened to do that is by standing on clear holy gospel Truth. That's what I want to show you from Paul's testimony this morning. He talks about his calling and his conversion, and they really happened at the same time. You remember from Acts chapter 9, where the Lord blinded Paul on the road to Damascus and threw him to the dirt and said, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you coming after my body, my church? Why are you coming against me? And he called the most unlikely person to be saved to be the premier example of someone who could be converted and someone who could be called to ministry so that we could be blown away with the idea that if paul could save if god could save paul if god if god could save the christian persecuting assenting to having christians killed person if god could save someone like that then guess what god could save fill in the blank especially with the lights going out fill in the blank god could save anybody Right, If God can save Saul, God can save Paul, then God can save anybody. Look at verse 12. This is Paul. He's trying to inspire Timothy to service. I thank him. He's talking about Jesus. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor and insolent opponent but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief now, preceding these verses, uh, Paul talks about what's lost when doctrine is let go in the church, and we talked about that last week. You have a different gospel. You have a squirrely message when you let doctrine go. You waste a lot of time straining at gnats and trying to examine the pin of a needle and say, how many angels can stand on that? You, you lose faith and love. Hard hearts happen in the church when doctrine is lost. Leaders get proud. The body becomes unaccountable, and you lose the glory of God because the gospel's gone. And ultimately, as was just read, people's souls are damaged and perhaps even lost when gospel is lost. So, what's gained? Two things: one, conversions. Let's start there. Conversions. And Paul starts with his own. If, if God can save Paul, He can save anybody. What I want you to do is look at this. Look at verse thirteen. He's talking about his calling in verse 12, his appointment, and we'll come back to that. But in verse 13, he begins to list himself as a sinner. And he does so with a few categories in ascending order, from lesser to greater. He says, I was a blasphemer. Let's start there. He was an antichrist. That's what Paul was, anti-Christ. We're going to read later on in Acts 26, his goal and mission, he thought he was appointed by God to do this, was to stamp out Jesus Christ and to get people to deny Christ. That was his goal. That's who he was. He was an anti-Christian person. Secondly, he was a persecutor. That word is dioko in the original language. It means he pursued people to run them down and throw them into jail. dioko means to run. It's to run after people. He was running after people, grabbing them. Acts 22 says men and women and put them in prison. Paul was very clear in his testimony. He gave his testimony over and over again. And he said, look, I ran people down and put them into jail. That's how bad I was. My job was to get people to deny Christ. And if they wouldn't, I put them in jail for it. And I assented to their execution. He was insolent. He was an insolent opponent. He, just, he was proud. He was ultimately a hard-hearted, religious, arrogant man. Completely callous. That's how bad he was. Now here's the gospel. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. We'll come back to that phrase. But basically, he's not excusing his sin there. He's just saying, I was so hypnotized in my own self-centeredness that I thought I was serving God. And all the while, I was serving Satan. But God intervened. And before I blasphemed the Holy Spirit and went too far where God reprobated me and let me go, he overwhelmed me with something. And that's found in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This overflow word super abundantly came upon me. That's what the word is saying. Do you remember that in your own testimony? It's where you're going one direction and the grace of God overwhelms you. Like a shore break wave on the beach, you're just overwhelmed all of a sudden with the grace of God. That's what happened to Paul. He, he had the gifts of faith and love enter into his heart. That's what it means to be saved. I was talking to somebody on the golf course this week, which I never golf, and I for sure don't walk 18, and I'll never do it again. Thank you very much, Rich Klein. But I uh, was talking to a guy this week, and he just said, you know, I just don't get it. I don't get, you know, the Scripture and Jesus, and Jesus is God. And, you know, I was just talking to him and witnessing to him. And what happens is when you become a Christian, you get faith and you get love. You you turn from being religious and arrogant to faith-filled and loving. Your heart changes. And that's the difference that happened in Paul's heart. Now look at the gospel doctrine. Look at the sound doctrine that grounds Paul's conversion in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'll go on. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is sound doctrine. Anytime you have trustworthy saying in the text, you're talking about put all your eggs in this basket. This is truth. What was Jesus' mission? Why did he come from heaven to earth? To save sinners. That's why he came, to save sinners. Paul's saying, look, let's just cut to the chase. He came to this world to save people like me. Save sinners, to rescue sinners. And Paul saw himself as the worst of the sinners. You can say, is that genuine? Is that true? Yes, he did. That list that we just went through is how Paul viewed himself. Blasphemer. Christian persecutor, arrogant, religious Pharisee. And Christ intervened and saved sinners the foremost. uh, It's kind of the idea of, and he repeats it. You see it in verse 16. It's verse 15 and 16. He's wanting this emphasis clear. He's the worst of the worst. Ephesians says the same thing. Ephesians 3, 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... He was very clear about the fact that he believed in his own heart that he was the absolute premier example of someone who is as bad as it possibly can get. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Christ appeared to him after the resurrection as to one untimely born. Verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. By the grace, verse 10, 10, of God, I am what I am. It's all by grace. I'm, I'm the absolute worst. It's like when you look into what you think is clean air and the sunbeam comes into the room and suddenly you see all the dust particles kicked up. That's what Paul was doing. He was seeing in his own heart the pride and the arrogance and who he was. One of my sons, one of my twins, got a second-degree burn on his leg, and it's healing up, and and it's going well. But for a few days, we're just looking at this oozing sore and trying to dress this thing, and we're trying to not let anything possibly touch it, right? That's how we get when we examine our hearts. We see how sinful we really are, and he saw it. But there's one thing that steadied him, and that was doctrine. Christ came into the world to save sinners, It was the mercy of God. It was the grace of God that overwhelmed him. And he saw himself as an example. You see that word in verse 16? The word example there is the word for sketch. It's as if Jesus Christ took a fresh palette and painted the perfect sketch of a life in Paul who was a Christian killer, an anti-Christian, an insolent, arrogant, religious, prodigal son's older brother figure against god and god reconciled and rescued this man and saved this man so he is the chief example of someone who could be saved that's what he's saying there he's he's the example of the ages so that none of you can sit here this morning and say i'm unredeemable i'm beyond grace i'm hopeless well if it wasn't hopeless for paul then from our perspective all we can say is look lord you can save anybody and he does. He saves the most unlikely people. And Paul is the example of hope for every one. That's what he's saying here, "For those who will believe upon him, who will rest in God for eternal life." And then he goes right into doxological worship in verse 17, "To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen." All I can say is, praise the Lord. He gives three descriptions of the king of ages. The king of ages meaning God who's throughout eternity being worshipped for his sovereign grace. Who is immortal. He's the king. He's creator. He's invisible. He's spirit and he's the only God. Conversion. Sound doctrine brings conversion. Don't you want conversions in the church? Aren't you excited when the waters of baptism are stirred? Aren't you excited to hear the testimonies of God's grace in the church? That's the life of the church is people getting saved. One of the main reasons, if not the chief functional reason why we are left here on earth when we become Christians is so that we can promote Christ so that people come to know Christ. Do you want people to be saved? Amen? Oh my goodness, come on, let's wake up here. Let's get, if we can't get excited about this, we've got to start all over. Do you want people to get saved, amen? amen? We want salvation because people need to be rescued by Jesus, our hero, who comes on a mission and rescues people. Now look, I'm going to just go right to chapter 2 and build on the idea that God can save anybody. If God can save Paul, then God can save pagans too. And this picks up on our announcement earlier to pray for people and and post a a flyer on our refrigerator to pray for governing authorities. Chapter 2 is talking about evangelistic praying. This is where Paul gives the first instructions to the church for what we're supposed to do. Paul could have said anything. He could have said, hey, let's um, focus on holiness. Let's focus on teaching. Let's focus on going door to door. But what he starts with is, hey, I'm urging you. He goes on a heart level because prayer is always prompted on a heart level. I'm urging you to pray. That's what he's saying. Pray for people. Why? Because if Paul could be saved, then anybody could be saved. And so we're supposed to pray for everybody. We're supposed to pray for kings kings. And we're supposed to pray for common people. We're supposed to pray for governing authorities. We're supposed to pray for our neighbor. It says, pray. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. He's urging this for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly and um, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray. This is evangelism. You say, I don't know how to evangelize. Well, pray for unsaved people. Dare I say, we should pray for Barack Obama. First and foremost, because he's in that office. I read uh, John Calvin's commentary on this section, and he dedicated his commentary of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus to this prince in Europe, in England, who was. Prince over um, England and also had influence over Scotland in the United Kingdom. And he's saying, look, as a Christian leader, there's been so much good that's happened in that area, in that commonwealth. The persecution of Christians have lifted, and I'm so glad that you're promoting the gospel through your administration. Calvin, who probably had never met the man, most people didn't get face-to-face interactions, just dedicated a commentary to him and sent him a letter on behalf of the, the governor. And just said, look, you're this tutor, you're this royal servant to the king, and you've had great influence, and I'm praying for you, and I dedicate um, my commentaries to you. I said, it's not flattery. I don't want to underestimate the power of what I'm doing, but I'm just this pastor, but I'm sending you a letter to do that. And I just thought that was really interesting. I mean, how often do we think of our governor, our mayor, our president, and say, look, I want to dedicate something to you. I want to put myself out there and pray for you. You know, the way for our nation to change is for people to get saved, first and foremost. We can change policies and we can do all kinds of things, you know, that are good and redemptive. But ultimately, if, gover- if governors and presidents are saved, if people get saved, and that is what transforms our land around us. I read the same uh, sentiment um, from an early church father this week, Tertullian, who uh, was a church father, a leader, a pastor, a theologian, and he wrote to um, the Roman Empire and actually was saying, listen, I'm praying for you. I'm wanting you to be preserved. I'm wanting the Roman Empire, even an empire that persecuted Christians. I want it to be saved. And the reason he was saying that was because if you had the barbarians and, and those who were uncivilized to come in and take over the Roman Empire, how much worse would that be for Christians? And that was his point. He said, so I'm praying for you. And ultimately, I'm not praying that you would be revered as God, because that's what people did in the Roman Empire in the second century, but I'm praying on behalf of, of God, who is the only true God, to redeem you. That's how we should pray. We should be about the mission of evangelism by praying for people to be saved. It's the power of God unto salvation. Who is it that God is laying on your heart that needs to be saved? That you need to be praying for? It's a good question to ask. It's one that I had to ask myself as I looked at this text. Look at this. Prayer should be made, verse 1, for all people. And then also for kings and those who are in high positions one thing about it if you get upset about government and about policies and procedures and and some of that righteous indignation is good but if you get sort of you know wound around the axle if you start praying for those governing leaders and think of them as unsaved people that need Christ it will quiet your spirit and it will give you a better testimony as a believer Paul isn't saying, look, let's be passive about government here. He's saying, look, let's be calm, let's be tranquil, let's be even-keeled and steady as we pray for God to give gospel influence. So, what he's doing. Well, let's start back up at the top. Let's go back to Paul's calling. Verse 12 again of chapter 1. I want to start there. Look back here. Verse 12, chapter 1. Yes, he was talking about being converted, but he was also talking about the simultaneous component of Christ calling him into ministry. Look at this. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I want to focus on this phrase, giving me strength. Do you need power in your life? Do you need strength to cope Paul is saying that because he knew that he didn't save himself and he didn't call himself and he didn't appoint himself and he didn't put himself in a service, that gave him strength. He was saying that, look, because Jesus, you give me power, and strength in my life, that's why I can serve. That's why he could be a cutting-edge missionary. That's why he could be beaten for the faith. That's why he could be falsely accused. That's why he could be um, attacked and assaulted personally, characterologically, doctrinally. That's why he could survive, because he knew that Jesus was infusing in his life strength. Now, there are many of you who probably doubt that God is calling you into ministry. Maybe some of you are being called to preach or called to shepherd or called to involve yourself with the spiritual gift that God has given you, and you've denied the Lord in that. Maybe you've just said, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified to serve, so I'm not going to serve. But listen, maybe your answer isn't trying to figure out whether or not you're qualified. Or maybe it's not for you to figure out whether or not you should serve. Maybe you should assume that you need to serve and use your spiritual gift. In the family of God, God's given you a chore to do in the household of faith. And and what you do is you rest in the fact that Christ will give you strength and power to fulfill it. That's what Paul is saying here. Again, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer. I want to show you how bad it was for Paul. Look back in Acts 26. Acts 26, this is where he was talking to King Agrippa, defending his faith and witnessing for Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, I myself, this is him as a Pharisee persecutor. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Do you see that phrase? I tr- imagine that. His goal under the authority of the synagogue was to try to make Christians blaspheme and in raging fury against them I persecuted them even to foreign cities ran people off he chased them but he said I acted ignorantly in unbelief he didn't disqualify himself once he was in office though he was Utterly untrusted when he first became an apostle. Remember the Christians kept their distance. They thought he was a mole coming on the inside to destroy them. Ultimately, as he gained credibility through faithful service, he served the Lord and he never wavered from his commitment. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. He was solid. He didn't disqualify himself once he was in. And he was saying, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So this is part of his calling. Jesus is the one who appoints you to serve. You don't appoint yourself to serve. I, I have to turn over quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul uses the same concepts of calling and conversion to inspire Timothy for service. Timothy's taking over a very, very difficult ministry, the church at Ephesus. And in 2 Timothy... In verse 5 of chapter 1, he reminds Timothy of his sincere faith, how he was raised by Lois and Eunice, his grandmother and mom, to be saved. The same faith that they have dwells in Timothy. And so he's saying, look, fan the flame, verse 6, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Look, you've been affirmed. You're not only converted, but you're called. Now look at verse 7. This is the strengthening part. This is what empowers you to put yourself out there it's like you know um Shelley or Steve Hatter or Daryl Bond as they got up in the pulpit you you need power to be vulnerable in ministry look at this for God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. As we talked about last week, Timothy did go to jail for his faith because Hebrews at the end talks about how Timothy had been released from prison. He did suffer for his faith. Well, back to uh, 1 Timothy. What, what grounds Paul in his calling? I want to skip down to chapter 2. It's doctrine sound doctrine is how we tap into the strengthening ministry of Christ. You say, I haven't sensed the ministry of Christ in my life. Well, let's fly low to the text and drink deeply of the well of healthy, sound, clear doctrine. Look at this. Verse three, this is good talking about praying again, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all, this is doctrine, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you see that doctrinal paragraph Now that leads right to verse 7. This is where Paul gets confidence for ministry. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why did Paul serve? It's because his calling, his being strengthened by Christ in his calling, his confidence to serve was grounded in sound doctrine. And it's through the doctrine of the gospel that Christ would speak power into his life. If you're struggling, you've got to regrip the gospel. Let's just look at this gospel paragraph for a minute. It probably warrants a lot more time that we're going to give it this morning. But I just want to touch upon the main points. Verse 4 Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? I do believe in the general call of the gospel. We don't know who God's elect are. Many are called and few are chosen. We don't know who the chosen are. So we preach the gospel to the whole world. God's love is unlimited in extent for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ezekiel chapter 33, God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter chapter 2 says that God is not willing, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. God's desire, his passion is for all the peoples of all the races to be saved. That's why he sent his son. That's why Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem and wanted to draw them to himself. But that desire or thalos, that will, is also held in tension and in concert in scripture with God's decretive will. There's a decretive will of God, the bulomai, where God is in his plan allowing for people to choose against him, for people to rage and burn against God, where God will in reprobation pass over people and allow people to go to hell based on their sinful rejection of God and Christ. I don't understand how that all fits together. I don't. I know God has a passion for the world to be saved. Part of the Abrahamic covenant is that to Abraham he promised that all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God is drawing to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation for his glory. He draws people from all over the world throughout all the ages of all time. It is the gospel of glory where God's love is on display and at the same time Because scripture does not teach universalism. Everybody won't be saved. It's a narrow road that few find to salvation. And wide is the road that leads to destruction. And so God in his plan actually receives glory while people are rejecting him. Where God is magnified and exalted as the one who is wrathful in judgment over those who reject him. The same God who created the butterfly... Also created the great white shark. And God is glorified and magnified through his creation. And all of his attributes are on display through his creation. So the Lord is glorified even as Romans 9 talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We don't understand. We're the clay. He's the potter. We can't answer back to God. We leave those things with him. But we're thankful that God saved us. That he, as you can see this, he desires all people to be saved. Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator. There's one reconciler. Who is that, people? Let's say it together. Who's the reconciler? Jesus, right? One mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Stop there. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus on the cross paid for everybody's sins? No. Um, we are bought with a price. Uh, Jesus, his atonement is sufficient for the whole world to be saved, but it's only effective for some. If you look at First Timothy chapter 4, just one page over, verse 10, it says, for To this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people. So he's generally the Savior for the world, but especially to those who believe. When Jesus was dying on the cross and he said, it is finished, that was him absorbing the wrath of God on behalf of his sheep, where he paid the price for their sins. It was a redemption accomplished and applied. 2 um, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, the clearest way that I can explain in short order what this ransom payment look like looks like, is just think about Jesus dying on the cross. He was dying between two thieves, two sinners. You have the thief on the cross, you have this other guy who's bound up in sin. They're both sinners. They're both on their way to hell. They're both blaspheming Christ as he's dying on the cross. Now, Christ is atoning for sins as he's dying on the cross, right? One is hardening his heart, and the other suddenly starts to say, wait a minute, maybe this is the Son of God. He's not done anything wrong. And he, he begins to be illumined by the Holy Spirit and awakened right next to Jesus. And so what's happening is, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he's atoning for the sins of one where he's passing over and rejecting the other who's rejecting him. So who's the ransom paid for? the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Sins atoned for and covered. And the other is let go into eternal hell. We need to pray for both though, right? We don't know who's God, who's our God's elect. We pray for all people. We pray for all kinds of people. We pray for the most powerful people. We need to pray for the weak people. We need to pray for everybody in the world, all races, all genders, all peoples, We need to pray for everybody. We need to evangelize everybody. We need to share the fact that God has a heart for everybody. But in the divine providence and will of God, there's a ransom for some, and those are the ones who actually believe. This is gospel doctrine. This is what grounded Paul to say in verse 7, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle to Gentiles, not just Jews, but to Gentiles. I'm going for it in the gospel on an unlikely mission. Why? Because Jesus loved me, and I know it. And he appointed me to do it. That's being grounded and strengthened in the gospel. Have you found that kind of strength? You know, studying this reminded me of a story that maybe you've heard it, but I looked it up, and I thought I would just share it with you. Horatio Spafford. He was, in the 1800s, a uh, renowned lawyer and an attorney. He lived in Chicago. He had a lot of land that actually was burned up in the Chicago fire. He had four girls, ranging from 12 all the way down to two. He had a wife that he loved dearly as a godly Christian family. They were, he and his wife, Elizabeth, were good friends with Dwight L. Moody in Chicago, and they supported him in ministry in his evangelistic efforts as he was reaching Chicago and the nation for Christ. Well, he had had a hard time with, uh, you know, his land being taken from him, and so he decided to bless his family and send them on vacation. He had to follow later because he had business to attend to. So he sent them on a ship to England. And as they were traveling, this is... His wife, Elizabeth, and their four children, four girls, their ship, which was a steamship, was struck by a sailing vessel in the Atlantic. And as you know, the ship went down. 226 people were killed, drowned in the Atlantic Ocean. The wife is said to, the mom was said to be surface diving, trying to rescue her kids, and they all died when she got to england she was only able to send a brief telegram probably because of her grief and because of where technology was she sent a telegram to her husband and it read saved alone so horatio spafford his life is turned upside down on its head and so what he does is he gets in the next ship and sails across the Atlantic to go be with his wife and go be where his children had been killed and his daughter who was born after this time they had three more daughters and one son a son who died of pneumonia at age of four but this later daughter said that after this tragedy that her husband Her father, Horatio, was writing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, as he traveled across the Atlantic to go be with his wife. That's when he was meditating on the gospel to get through what seemed unbearable. As he's sailing across the Atlantic, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Before I read the last line that I'm going to read from this song, I just want to encourage you to understand, Horatio Spafford didn't write some introspective, Funeral dirge, or he didn't write about anything that was good in his life or things that happened to him that could try to encourage him through his difficult time. I'm not saying it would have been wrong to do that, but what Spafford clung to, to gain inner strength, to move on in the Christian life was doctrine. Do you see that? He, this is doctrine that he wrote. Living, powerful, applied, healthy doctrine. Listen to this. And Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. How, could, how do you get through? How do you get through the difficulties of life? How do you lose loved ones and keep going? It's sound, healthy gospel doctrine that's imprinted on your heart where you know that there's something else to cling to. It's Christ who has saved us, unworthy sinners, called us, appointing us to serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time. Thank you for the scripture. I pray that as we sing it as well with my soul right now, that we would be exulting in gospel doctrine on a heart level, embracing the fact that you have converted us and you've called us to minister the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: you hearing those words I think it's important that we sing them and we all know them but if you would stand with us and stand together and, and sing them as a congregation just think through the, the amazing depth and truth that this man was pinning as he was contemplating the realities of his life When peace like a river attendeth my way, when well, it is well with my soul, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more, praise the Lord. not just the congregation. And, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so, it is well. With- you this week. May you remember the gospel that saved you, the grace, the truth that overtook your heart, and may you have a passion and a boldness to share that with the people who desperately need to hear it. The Lord bless you. You've been dismissed.